thank you, Lord, that we worship as one body, as one family. That we're unified by your spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lucy. We're taking a break from our series on endurance this morning to focus our response as a church on the murder of George Floyd and the implications of his murder on our own community here and us as a family here at St. Peter's. In a minute, we're going to have a conversation um, that we recorded yesterday played between some members of our church. But before we do that, I just want to share really briefly. And I want to start by reading out a text message from a good friend of mine called Alan, who's part of the conversation in a moment. And he sent this text message to me after the morning service last week. And it said this. He said, you won't know this, but Lally, his wife, and I have been in tears and in pain all weekend about the racism in America and in the UK. We've not done much else but get angry and cry. And the silence and apathy by many white people we know, including our friends, has been defeating. It's a symptom of privilege and the insidious nature of racism. And the church in the UK is just as culpable and at best gives a sanitised version, if anything. He says, I didn't want to tune into church this morning through fear that it would hurt me even more and I wouldn't want to come back. And then he talks about how healing it was to have Dom and Alice speak about the issue as soon as the service started in their welcome. And I don't share that text message to boast about our response this last week, but to, because to be honest, when I read that message, I was ashamed and I was sad. I was ashamed because if it weren't for Dom and Alice, who are more awake to this issue than I am, are further down the line on realising how important this is as an issue to us as a church family, I would have left our response till after the worship and during the prayers. I was ashamed and I was sad because this is one of my best friends and I had no idea that he'd been in pain for the whole week. I had no idea that he was tuning into our service to see how we'd respond. And I was sad because if we followed my plan, one of my best friends would have struggled to make his way through our service. On Monday um, morning, during my quiet time, my passage was from Matthew 12, and it was Jesus healing a deaf and a mute man and um, delivering him from demonic oppression. And the Pharisees see him do it, and they accuse him of doing it in the name of Beelzebub, in the name of the devil. And Jesus' response was this. He says, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. And when I read that, I realised how clearly it was that this is an issue that we're facing right now that has the potential to ruin our church, that has the potential to divide us as a family. Racism is demonic and we need to be delivered from it. We need to be healed from it. And we need to respond as a church. So how do we respond? Well, firstly, we need to see the bigger picture. 
And the bigger picture is to recognise that this is a clash between two kingdoms. It's a clash between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, is shining a spotlight on racial injustice in our country and in our community and in our family right now. And a battle is raging as a result. The verse that Hanal shared from Revelation 7 is this beautiful picture of every nation, every tribe, every people, every language standing before the throne of God and worshipping the Lamb, worshipping Jesus. And when I read that, it makes me sad because there's an injustice staring us in the face that needs to be overcome, that needs to be defeated before we get to enjoy and taste that same expression of the kingdom come fully. We need to start by seeing the bigger picture. The second thing we need to do is we need to make sure that we're on the right side of the battle. And I'm speaking to our white community in our church right now. Some of you will be behind me in terms of waking up to this issue. Some of you I know are way ahead of me and way more aware of how important this is, of the fact that this really does need to be a priority for us. And in order to be able to catch up, in order to be able to realise how important this is, we need to connect with the level of pain and hurt many members of our church family are in at the moment. This past week, Hanel and I have been ringing black and ethnic minorities, members of our family um, in our church, and we've been asking them how they've been doing. And hearing the level of pain that they've been in this week is incredibly hard to hear. Some are in grief, some are angry, all of them are exhausted. And the hardest thing to hear is that this is nothing new. And some of the experiences of racism that members of our own family have had are incredibly hard to hear. And the thing we need to realize is that we are one body and when one part of our body suffers, we all suffer. One of the things that's so remarkable about Jesus when he defeats darkness in the Gospels is that he has compassion on the people he steps out and heals and delivers from oppression and from sickness. And that compassion is this gut-wrenching hurt, being able to empathise and identify a hurt that someone's experiencing, and that leads him to move in power to change it. We need to do the same in our own church community. The third thing we need to do is we need to repent. Because as we do that, as we start to connect with members of our family that are in pain, we'll realise that we've been complicit or complacent in our racism, in racism and prejudice in our church. I was made aware of this issue when we first grafted into this church two years ago. Um, this church was 50% um, black and ethnic minority, and as a result of grafting from a white majority church, that figure went quickly down to 30%. And people came up to me and said, this is going to be an issue, and we need to address this, and we need to get ahead of this, and we need to deal with this. And I'm ashamed that it took me a year to gather together our leadership and start to think about how we're going to do it. It took me a further three months to have a follow-up meeting about that. And for that, for my silence, for my apathy, I need to repent and I need to say sorry and I need to turn around and move in the other direction. The fourth thing we need to do is we need to act and we need to speak out. In Luke 4, Jesus uh, outlines his manifesto. He says, this is what I've come to do. And he says that he's been sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed 
free. The whole point of being a Christian is to become like Jesus and do what Jesus did. This is what we are supposed to be doing. Some of us in our church family need to have our eyes open to a blind spot that we've held on to for too long now. This is our wake-up call. We need to open our eyes. Some of us are suffering from the oppression of racism in our society, in the structures that surround our society, in our community, and in this church, and they need releasing from oppression. We need to act and we need to speak out. We need to join with Jesus in fighting against racism in our community and in our church. And all of these things need to happen. And this is only the beginning of our response. But this morning, I want us to start right at the beginning and start by connecting with some members of our family. And they very kindly said that we can film them as we have a conversation. We had a conversation yesterday about their experience of the last couple of weeks. And so this is a recording of that conversation yesterday. Guys, thank you so much for coming this afternoon. Thank you for making time to come and chat. And um, I know you guys have had a full on couple of weeks and you're emotionally exhausted and there's lots going on. Um, so we really appreciate you coming to um, chat together here. Um, it's Saturday afternoon and giving up your Saturday afternoon. Thank you for doing that. Um, let me just introduce these guys for people watching who don't know you. So here we have Alan, and Alan is the head of policy and advocacy, an incredible charity seeking to fight poverty across the globe. And I've known Alan for 15 years now, yeah. long time. And Alan came with the St Mary's graft. Um, when we grafted into St. Peter's a couple of years ago. So, Alan, thank you for coming. Appreciate it. And Tamara, um, Tamara is one of our youth here at St. Peter's, and um, Tamara is currently doing her A-levels and having to face the challenge of doing it during lockdown and COVID. Um, Tamara's incredible, and um, we'll be running the country one day soon, mm -hmm. I'm sure. Um, yes. And then we've got Chris over here, and Chris is our youth leader at St. Peter's. I have no idea how we convinced him to be our youth leader. <laughs> He's wildly overqualified. Uh, he used to work for XLP um, and ran all of South London, didn't you? Yeah, for XLP. was the yeah. manager. And has done so much before that. Um, but Chris, thank you so much for coming this afternoon and chatting. Um, so I just wondered if we could start um, with you, Chris. Mm -hmm. um, Chris, you spoke very movingly to our staff on... Tuesday morning for our staff meeting, just about some of your initial reflections um, after the murder of George Floyd and just helping us as a staff team to really start to connect with what's actually going on in the UK and in our community and in our church as a result of his murder. So I just wondered if you wouldn't mind just reflecting on a bit of that now for yeah. us. Yeah, it was, it was really hard to, to, um, to do that and to not do it emotionally and I, I tried really hard, but... Um, my initial thoughts on um, uh, George Floyd's murder and the kind of reaction that was building steam, say, a week and a half ago, was um, this is nothing new. Um, this has happened before. And um, part of what I said to the staff team was um, I was glad for our response on Sunday um, Dom and Alice uh, praying a prayer of repentance, and I was glad that Ben led a time of prayer, um, really highlighting what was happening. But I could list and did list um, cases that had happened in the weeks leading up to George Floyd in America where um, there was no response from the church or from anyone. Um, 
Um, I, I named Ahmed Albury as one um, where there was a, a cry out, but there was no there was no sense of collective uh, kind of uh, anger as we have now. And then I brought up a, a case that actually happened in Catford, where I live. Um, two years ago, a man was uh, restrained by the police and died in restraint, and we had no response then. And um, I then brought up the fact that when my son was born, I could barely work because I was so worried that I was bringing a young black boy, even though he's dual heritage, his skin would be brown, and I'd be bringing him into a world which would um, see him as angry and violent and a drug dealer or a gang member because he's brought up in South East London. And it, it killed me inside. Yeah. But then I took um, a word that really kind of highlights um, how we should respond. Um, it's a Hebrew, an old Hebrew word from the Old Testament. I can't say it properly, but it's a car. It means remembrance. It's the word they use in the Old Testament when um, they say, God remember us. And um, the thing about it is it, it's not a passive remembrance, like uh, remember to get the, sh you know, to do the shopping or remember, remember me, like we would say it. It's a visceral one. Uh, the Jewish tradition is one of remembering the times of suffering in their people. Mm. Um, when we sometimes kind of reenact the Last Supper in this church and we do the cedar and uh, we take uh, water with salt in it and we say this is the tears of our ancestors and we dip uh, parsley into it and say these are the bitter herbs. Yeah. That's the kind of remembrance we need to have when we think about racism and racial tension and the times we're in now that this doesn't just blow over next week, that people put a, a black square on their Facebook or their social media, and then next week it's all recipes again. Yeah. <laughs> we need real meaningful change, personally, system systemically in our society and in our governments. Um, and that doesn't come from like being really upset for a week. Um, and that's kind of where I wanted to take the staff team. And we, we prayed into that and we looked at kind of um, that remembrance as a team, which was really, really powerful, and I felt heard and I felt um, accepted, um, and it was really powerful for me to be able to share that um, with them in an open way. So mm. thank you. Mm. Uh, and Chris, you mind me asking, um, <coughs> yeah. what do you feel is, is and in many ways, there's nothing different, but what has happened here with George Floyd's murder that's caused that to be so much more visceral this time? I'm, the cynic in me says people are in a heightened sense of panic and fear and they have been locked up uh, physically in their houses because of COVID-19 and given uh, a flashpoint, they um, reacted and acted and um, have found something that they can have some control over and have some passion for. Um, and, you know, that's the cynic in me. The, the other bit says that this is a Kairos moment. This is the moment where um, collectively people of all colours have decided, actually, we, we have a morality that says, I don't, I don't need you to tell me that those police officers that killed George Floyd were wrong. I can yeah. see it. Yeah. And I, I don't need them to go to prison to know it. 
I can see it and I can feel it and no one should die like that and no one should suffer like that. And that collective understanding of morality has pushed people into checking, checking themselves and checking their own prejudices and bias and privilege and that's led them to the place. Maybe a bit of both is happening, but um, I, I, really, I really am digging into the second one. Thanks, Chris. And um, Alan, um, just being at work like the last couple of weeks post George Floyd's murder, um, sometimes the white community don't know how to respond in this way, and a lot of it begins with what Chris is talking about. Um, really, for us to empathise and learn to have compassion, and that obviously starts with, with listening. Um, just talk us through some of the helpful things um, and unhelpful things that you've experienced the last kind of couple of weeks. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. Um, I think I'll start by setting the scene a bit about the international development sector. Yeah. Um, even though it works, you know, in the global south, it's one of the least diverse sectors, if not the um, least unrepresentative sector. Mm. And so that's a problem in itself. The visualisation and the optics of it are all kind of wrong. Um, but anyway, kind of um, the Sunday, um, the Saturday and the Friday, um, with my wife just crying, getting angry. Um, I think like lots of people, it kind of hit home and it was like a sense of enough is enough. Yeah. Um, and, you know, living through it, like, you know, as Chris and tomorrow would have, it's, it's kind of like, no, this can't go on. Anyway, I go into work on a Monday, um, get a couple of Slack messages from... There's about um, about six um, people of colour in the organisation. Um, a couple of them just messaged me. They know I'm an ally. I kind of on these issues. I'm always going on about diversity and inclusion and, and all the other. But um, yeah. one that really stuck stuck with me was someone who said, um, "I was just in the staff meeting. I couldn't be at that staff meeting because I was at a different meeting." And they were just saying, "Is are we going to do anything about this? By the way, um, is the management team?" planning on doing anything. I said, oh, why, what's up? Was anything mentioned at the staff meeting? And, um, they said no, like nothing was. And then they said, if we can talk about bringing a pet into work, we can at least have a conversation. Now, that's, I'm kind of half laughing at that because that's what we're talking about. That's the contrast between what some people want to talk about yeah. and something so serious as it doesn't get talked about. And the next bit she said was a really... Um, stuck with me. Um, they said, um, for me, this is as important as COVID, if not. Now, I'll tell you why that's important. The last conversation I had with her a couple of weeks before was about a family member of hers who died from COVID. So this is what we're really talking about. Mm. It runs deep. Mm. Um, for some to say that, um, it's heartbreaking. Someone else I spoke to was just saying that... Um, just gave an example of them not being able to um, kind of shut down when they asked about Black History Month a while ago and saying, oh, it's not for us to say. And they said, you know, I've kind of accepted that, you know, um, we stand at least as an organisation two metres away from these issues. Mm. Interesting um, kind of analogy <clears throat> while talking about everything else. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so there is a sense anyway in the sector that, like, you know, it, it, you know, despite it being paid to us, or they must be all good people, that uh, it's quite systemic and endemic in those examples. Anyway, I turn up, um, two 
the staff meeting and um, anyone else got anything else on the agenda. And what I do in these situations, I kind of wait. You know, I'm kind of the only person of colour in that kind of um, quartet of senior management team and waiting for someone to talk about the elephant in the room. <laughs> Nothing comes up. I was like, well, I think we need to talk about what's happened and maybe I'll just start. But I basically spent 58 of the one hour just talking about the issues, um, crying, getting angry. And, you know, in a professional setting, it's not what you do, but it's that, that's gone. Mm. Um, what was interesting also, my colleagues, uh, nice colleagues, but kind of, it was interesting. They, they gave me kind of a version of, it was almost like they were presenting to the person of colour in the room. Yeah. It was a bit kind of like, oh, yeah, I feel like, director's like, I feel like, basically, it felt, you know, I didn't want to say anything or do want to engage because of what it would have done to me. Okay, so what I hear is like, okay, it's about you and you're kind of almost convincing me that it would have been too hard for you and that's why you didn't get involved. Mm. Another colleague said something similar. I just responded by saying, well, for me, it's not really a choice. Mm. That is a place of privilege to kind of think that it might upset you a little and you might cry. But we're not talking about your child being taken from you because of the colour of the, your skin. And I wanted just to shed a light on, on how it works because it's mm. not often about just being, you know, using the N-word, using the P-word. It's, it's, it's about apathy. It's about silence. And the silence could be felt. Now, the good thing is um, after that conversation, there was a bit of a, right, we need to do a few things to, you know, have an internal email, set up an internal meeting so people of colour can speak about their experiences. Um, we need to do this and I was like this is all good but let's just kind of step back a bit because mm. I'm you know uh, uh, do I use the word cynical or do I say experience has shown me that um, you know a lot of this is about um, reputation risk so organizations are, are running over themselves yeah. to release statements you know like the Washington Redskins did one the other day the media response was, well, we've been talking to you for years why you have a symbol of a Native American who is quite oppressed, maybe change things like that. So I, I think what I would like um, the society to do is to kind of take action, but kind of step back a bit, mm. listen, mm. Um, experience um, mm. kind of what people are kind of um, going through and, and really including them, let them drive it. Don't be like, oh, thanks for that, and then kind of, you know, we'll take over. And kind of, I think what Chris said, like, people are watching, yeah. like, uh, three days from now, seven days from now, two months from now, three months, six months. I have a friend who's recording the statements of a lot of um, the people in our sector who are kind of um, rolling out the kind of one person of colour in the organisation to make a statement. But I can guarantee this person is going to come in two, three, four, five, six months, and then... Um, ask what's changed mm. they've they're, they're taking pictures of the executive board and the leadership and because yeah. you know i think i think people are a bit tired because they've heard kind of different variations of this but hopefully now we can use this as a catalyst to kind of drive forward some real change yeah yeah that's good and and just having i mean we chatted yeah. a lot yeah. this last week um and it's so obvious that it's it's is exhausting because you're yeah, yeah. you're incredibly hurt and yeah, yeah. you're grieving and, yeah. and that's tiring and it's exhausting um, and I'm just very aware often I'm asking your advice and, and your help and mm -hmm. trying to um, 
learn from you, and that just adds to the exhaustion mm. often. Um, so I guess, like, what as as the white community wanting to engage, a lot of us will have woken up finally, um, and we're wanting to engage and to learn and to um, empathise and, and and start to. Um, have the kind of conversations that will have the same kind of gut compassion mm. that Jesus mm. had to issues of injustice mm. and oppression. Like, what would your advice be to the white community, just in terms of educating themselves and, yeah, yeah. and not just always then just putting the burden back yeah, on? Yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. I think that's, you know, that awareness of that kind of, I think, goes a long way for me anyway. But I think there is a sense of, um, yeah, learning. Like, I kind of, if something's wrong with that, car like immediately we might not call an engineer straight away or for interest kind of we'll go into google and find it ourselves so if we're interested generally in the yeah. subject we can kind of research it ourselves but i'm happy always to give advice and and to give people um thoughts on on what i think they should do but i think yeah the first thing i said was before stepping up which is action is stepping back yeah sometimes stepping off yeah. like, <laughs> and that means learning like you know uh, there's various book lists there's talking to your friends but you know, if I'm honest, like, I kind of operate in a white-dominated environment. I kind of fit in to the language, uh, the lack of emotion, um, making others feel comfortable rather than talking about my own. Mm. But I haven't, which has meant that it, I can't recount far few any of my kind of white friends asking me about what it's like to be, you know, what's racism like for you? What was it like being an immigrant in this country? Mm. Um, tell us about it, like... Um, but I'm, 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 I'm also quickly to, to say, oh, was work quite stressful? Oh, that was bad. And we'll talk mm. on hours on end about that. Mm. So I'm just trying to kind of point to kind of just having that in our periphery. Yeah. So learn, educate yourself. And as I said, it can't, it can't stop because I think that's where the hurt lies, that mm. feeling of like, oh, sure, everyone's talking about it. Um, but again, that's what I think made your... And Dom's statement really powerful. It said, sorry. It said, we will be educated. There's humility. Um, and I think that will, will go a long way. Um, I think practically, I think um, we probably need to um, talk about a kind of racial and class diversity in the church. Yeah. Like, um, it's not good enough just to have like one thing a year at St. Paul's Cathedral that everyone runs to. Um, um, and I think. For a lot of people, they're not aware what diversity looks through through their lens. Mm. So, just giving you an example, like you know, if someone is from say a small village somewhere and they come into London, like and they go to a church and there's a couple of black people, maybe a couple of Asian people. For them, that's probably quite diverse. But when I walk into a church, um, and I think this piece is actually quite better. But like I'm talking about my experience of church of churches in London in very diverse communities in yeah. 2020. How is it that the leadership, the makeup of the church does not represent the minute you step outside that church, the mm. first person you see in the street. Mm. So I think we just need to, and it's been great having conversations with you and Chris about the fact that we as a church don't want to be complacent in that. We don't want to create an environment that, that, that just kind of makes us um, white people comfortable. We want it to be a diverse church um, full of, you know, everyone and you know it's not just a church it's just an issue as I've talked about in kind of my work setting as well so I think um, taking some action in terms of 
and keeping an eye on kind of the diversity and, and it's everything from like our worship to the food we serve up yeah. to where we have our kind of Christmas parties and 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 even you know a, a polite challenge to the community like you know it's great you know day to day bumping into people different from you on a Sunday but are you hanging out with them on a Saturday on a Friday are they in your houses mm. um, have you talked to them about racism mm. or was the only time you see them is they're kind of operating in your kind of world and you know uh, it's some of these amazing people are my friends but when I see kind of um, Facebook pictures on, on kind of the weddings they go to and stuff I, I don't see anyone like <laughs> they're pretty much white weddings and, and as I say in London in 2020 you see that you're like how does that happen in some of that London so I'm just giving a, 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 a challenge yeah. to the church but kind of a sense of like what it can look like when you're the other yeah, that's really helpful. Thanks, Alan. That's really helpful. Um, Tamara, um, I mean, this obviously isn't a new issue and it's been going on for a long, long time. And you grew up in Broccoli, mm-hmm. grew up in Lewisham. Um, how have the last two weeks been for you? Um, just kind of, obviously, a lot of this has, has gathered steam and momentum on social media. Uh, which is a good thing, but it's it's relentless, isn't it? And it's um, it's tiring to just constantly have that going through your feed and also conversations with friends. And for you often, it's just something that's been a part of kind of your reality growing up. Um, anyway, just, just chat us through a bit about how you've been doing your experience the last two weeks. Um, I think it didn't really hit me until recently, like the past two, three days, because... Me and I have a couple friends that me and them try to constantly have that conversation about racism mm. because I feel like it's something that dies out. People stop talking about it when there isn't a killing on the news or the media isn't covering it because people aren't rioting or protesting. So for a lot of us, we've been talking about it for a very long time. But mm. what I've noticed about some of my other friends, they prefer not to talk about it at all because they don't... It's not that they don't feel comfortable, but they don't want to go through those feelings and emotions of have, knowing the fact that their skin colour, something which is out of their control, can result in them dying. And it happens a lot, especially for my black male friends. They really don't like talking about it. And they experience racism a lot in this country as well when it comes to things like stop and search or in schools when there's like fights or in big, when you tend to have big groups of black people, a lot of teachers call it like a gang. So it's... I think in the UK, racism is very institutionalised. So it's something people try not to see because it's not obvious, it's not in your face, but Mm. it still exists. So I don't want it to be a thing where we do stop having that conversation, as Chris said. Mm -hmm. If this has to have a permanent effect on us and it has to be something we're constantly thinking about, constantly talking about, taking action, educating our friends, not only just our black friends, because a lot of black people don't know about their history as well because... They don't want to talk about it, yeah. but also our white friends, our Asian friends, just everyone in general. So it's something which everyone can feel comfortable talking about because right now people don't feel comfortable talking about it because they're not educated. They don't want to tread on anybody's toes yeah. as well. So, yeah, I just think it's important that we do continue having that conversation. Yeah. 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 No, that's really helpful. And um, often um, I've heard people in the white community say, I don't want to say anything because I'm scared I'll say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is, is ignorance because just, we haven't often educated ourselves on, on the issues and, and the kind of 
questions and we haven't connected in the way that we're talking about. But, um, what, like, what would your response be to someone who, who said that? Someone at school is like, I don't want to say the wrong thing, so I'm not going to talk about it. Um, when it comes to... Because I've had that conversation with a couple of people recently, and I tend to ask them why they don't feel comfortable. Like, what is it about the situation yeah. that... But, and a lot of people, it's guilt, because they feel as if, like, these are my people doing that to your people. So it's like, do I really want to talk about it? And you just have to kind of ensure them that that one person, that one white policeman doesn't represent all white people in the world. And that way you can actually show them that there's actually good white people, good people of other races, actually standing for us, rioting with us, at us, with, on the front line at those protests. So then when they realise it's not about them, they become more open to the conversation, more open to learning about mm. the culture, the history. And I've had a lot of friends come up to me and ask me where they can research about it, where they can learn about black history and what's been happening as well. But I think also because social media is covering it quite a lot recently, yeah. it's in everyone's face. We can't yeah. really avoid it. So even if you didn't want to learn about it, it's kind of there. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> you, you live on like Snapchat and other platforms. <laughs> and um, I just wonder, I've been really incensed and angry when I've read certain comments trying to explain away um, the need for protest or the need to be angry at the death of, of George Floyd, but at racism. How do you cope with like side comments in, in, on social media? How do you deal with that? Because I can't. <laughs> You're better at that stuff than me. Um, I think in the beginning, I was more like angry. Hmm. Like I used to remember arguing with people a lot. Like, why would you say that? There's a reason behind this. There's a reason behind that. And then I feel like I can't talk to people and educate people that don't want to be educated. No. So it's, can't, some, it's can't, not something I want to enforce on you. It has to be a genuine need to learn and want to learn about what's happening. So, like, people do argue about the protests and the riots and talking about how there's the coronavirus and things like that going on at the same time. But it's a thing where nothing else has worked beforehand. Mm. And I remember um, watching a video of a man, um, Tupac actually, yeah. was saying that, let's say we're outside the building and inside the building there's a lot of people, there's a big feast, they're having fun, they're having a party. And the first week you ask them, can I come in? And they don't want to let you come in. The second week you're saying, please, I'm hungry, I want to come in, please let me come in. And then the third week you start knocking doors, you're getting angry because you're not having access to the treasures that everybody inside the room is having. So I think after a while, it becomes a thing of impatience. We're not waiting to be treated equally. It's now we have to demand it. We're not asking yeah. anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, you just kind of have to explain it to them as well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I think with all this also, there is, I think it's, it's nice all of us talking about this, but with, at least for me, is uh, with that tiredness. The tiredness comes from another conversation that stays with us. Yeah. But also that feeling of uh, please let this kind of not just be now while the attention's on it um, because you know I was speaking to someone actually from this church and there was just a, a you know they were praying and um, in their prayer there were tears and the cry out that said um, father why have you forgotten about us um, now, that spoke of a loneliness and isolation in one of the most powerful bits of the gospel, which is Jesus on the cross. Mm. Father, Father, why have you forsaken us? So that runs deep. Mm -hmm. It's saying that we feel alone, 
please let this not be about you and kind of um, whether it's guilt, that's fine. Like, get rid of it. It's not about guilt. We're, we're all part of this uh, program. If it's about fear, we get past that fear. Um, but let's not ensure that people in 2020 in London, in our churches, feel like they have to say, Father, Father, why have you forgotten us? And it starts with us, yeah. each of us, reaching out and kind of having it in our periphery and knowing that actually let's see things through the lens of other people because I think that's the only way we're, there, there will be change. But, I mean, it's encouraging to see what's happening here, right? I think from the beginning, conversations always, you've, we've had that kind of um, a bit front and centre, an eye on kind of what the church looks like and kind of, um, trying to ensure their rich diversity. And I know the conversations here will kind of continue, but in terms of what individuals in the church can do, I think is, is, is kind of remembering that isolation and that loneliness that Jesus felt on the cross yeah. and how that's how a lot of us feel a lot yeah. of the time, um, yeah. even the ones who have kind of navigated this society and look to everyone else like, oh, just kind of one of us, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. And that, I mean, it's a kingdom issue in, in many ways, mm. but Jesus cried out on the cross so that we don't have to. Mm. And that we have people in our community who are Christians experiencing that makes it, makes it a kingdom, kingdom issue that needs to change. Mm. The, the thing is, I remember when I was younger, like saying that prayer as well, like, mm. God, have you forgotten me? And all of that when I was, I don't think, like, I remember being in a place of, ignorance as well when I was younger because I didn't know that having being black was a bad thing like, I didn't mm. see it as a bad thing originally so I think it was only when I was about in year two because I've been to three primary schools within this area that people started commenting about my skin and I at first I was really confused I was like what's going on like I don't really see the problem and then after a while it was kind of repetitive and I remember going home and I was crying like I was really really crying when I was young and then, Thinking about it, watching my sister grow up as well and going through that is a bit sad because nothing's changed from when I was younger too. I remember going around the house looking for like bleaching cream because I wanted to be lighter. Like I really wanted to make myself lighter. And there wasn't any in there and I was crying and I was, my mum, I remember talking to my mum because my mum is lighter than me. And I was like, why can't I be like you? Why can't I be light like you? And it was a hard conversation to look back at because now, now I've come to love my skin colour, but it took a very long time to get there and not learning about racism and things like that in school. Mm. Not only in the primary school, I think it's important to learn about it from young, but I kind of expected going to secondary school, I'd learn about it more. But even sometimes we didn't celebrate things like Black History Month. And it was a bit weird because there's, there was a lot of black people within the school. So it wasn't just something that just related to us. There was a lot of people that wanted to learn about it as well, that weren't black as well. And having like rules in school kind of accepted for some people and not for others. So for like example, our hair color. I remember there was a um, girl, a white girl in our school that dyed her hair blonde and she was originally a brunette and the school didn't have a problem with it because it was a natural color. And then one of my friends who was black dyed her hair blonde and they had a problem with it because it's not a natural colour for black people. So things like that, at the end, first of all, black people can have blonde hair, but it's the fact that I have to explain to you that just mm. because I'm black, I, I can't dye my hair this colour is a bit rude. Yeah. 
and even hair colour when it comes to things like braids yeah. or having, we used to have this like gold string that we used to put around our hair that we used to get told off for. And then we'd have our white friends coming in with different coloured hair and then the teachers wouldn't do anything about it. So things like that really hit us. Like yeah. I remember telling also my teacher, they used to tell individual black people, like when we had, like let's say one of us got in trouble and we had a meeting, we would be talking to them and they'd say, okay, I think you need to stay away from this group. And by this group, they, meant, they would say the gang, as in the group of black girls that we all used to be a part of. They're like, I think you need to stay away from here and go to these girls. And then the girls that they were talking about us talking to were the white girls or the Asian girls, just people who they didn't see as so-called gangs. And that was, that was very, like, I don't know. It was kind of eye-opening because a lot of people didn't think it was happening as well. And when yeah. we tried to explain to our white friends, they kind of just dismissed it because they didn't really see it. And I, I understood because it's like, if you're not experiencing something, you're not going through it, it's hard to see mm. how other people are as well. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it was hard schools. Even up to now, my school I'm at now hasn't released a statement and the majority of the school is black. So it's not anything that's changing from when I was in primary school to now, which is really annoying because yeah. so much so much time has gone by and we're still in the same position we were 17 years ago. But yeah. 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 And we're older than you. Exactly. And it's the same. So. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, I think Will Smith said recently, uh, you know, racism's um, not increased, it's just now it's being filmed. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, and I think tomorrow's example is quite good because, you know, I kind of spoke about um, for anyone who thinks racism looks like just being called an N-word or a P-word or anything else, right? Mm. It's much more insidious, and that's why I think it's important to educate and learn how it plays out. Because yeah. mm. what you had is an example of, if you're white, one rule applies for you. Yeah. If you're black, yeah, one rule applies. And that's just racism in itself. But actually, behind that, what's happening is um, you're having, um, I'm assuming, a white teacher basically telling someone what a black person mm. should look like and mm. to almost telling them to stay in their place. Mm. Right? Mm. Um, I've been like the only person in a dentist, right? And because my name's Alan, like, <laughs> they're like, oh, it's Alan here. And then I've been like, Alan. And then they're like, Alan Francis. You know, people I've not met in meetings and just walk past. Again, it's so subtle. Like, they're just saying that you should, you should or shouldn't look this way. Mm. Um, Visualisation, I think, is a really important thing. Um, like, and, and, yeah, like, for example, even you and Dom, when you, you came around, these guys came around my, uh, to, in the garden the other day just for like a quick chat and the neighbourhood watched there was a text that went round and I'm just giving you an example Dom had a cap on mm. Ben had like tracksuit or something Ben looks obviously young anyway but there was a text round because in this neighbourhood like and we're the only brown kind of yeah. couple um, it was a, it, 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 they basically said oh there's a couple of people sitting outside your like but to the whole green house and Lali just said because I had stepped inside for a bit they're our friends. But see what was happening here. Yeah. Uh, black space, white space. And though you guys were white, it didn't fit what white space looked like, which was, oh, if you had chinos and a shirt, you'd be fine. But these guys don't look like they quite belong. They surely couldn't be friends with someone, right? Again, we're going back to diversity. So that was just beauty from being looking slightly different. So imagine the kind of like people walking around like kind of here and there and and you know stopped and searched and stuff it's much worse for people who are black yeah. and kind of Asians and stuff it's yeah. so I think the visualization and kind of 
consciously unconscious is is huge. Is a big problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and obviously, this is just just the beginning of many things, many more conversations, many things that need to be done. Um, but perhaps to finish, um, what's what what one thing or a couple of things you think how or how actually should we be praying mm. at the moment as a church, Chris? Uh, I was thinking about this. You sent it yesterday, and I, um, my first thought is. Um, on an individual level, as members of the church, we really need to interrogate our, pri- our privilege and our prejudice. Mm. And when I mean interrogate, you need to look in your soul and think about instances where you've interacted with a brown or black person and how they have gone, where you felt uncomfortable because you know you've said something which is deeply hurtful or um, had just no conscious kind of level of care in it. Um, for me as a black man, the biggest issue is uh, the feeling that I'm always judged as being aggressive. Um, I maintain a level of uh, jovialness uh, as a, a round fat man as well, a black man as well. Um, I, I'm always trying to be happy in front of people so people don't worry that um, I'll be aggressive, um, because I'm big and because um, I'll somehow all of a sudden be aggressive or hurt them. So uh, my first prayer was, if you've ever just looked at someone and said, oh, they're aggressive, or someone's been emotional and sharing passion and you felt and thought that person's aggressive and it's because of their skin colour, not because of what they've done, um, Pray about it and repent of it. And let that repentance stir you into action. Humble yourself. Find that person if you can. In the AA, when you go through the step process, Alcoholics Anonymous, you bring up all the hurt and pain your addiction has caused. And then you write a list of all those people and you go and search them out and you say, I'm really sorry. This is part of my process of healing. Um, But I really need to make amends with you. And racism is the same as addiction in that way. I want want God to stir people into realising where they've hurt their brothers and sisters in the church Mm. by their actions, where careless comments have caused pain and suffering, where it's meant that brown and black people have not been able to be fully whole, celebrating and worshipping a God who created the whole universe in his image. Um, so that's my prayer. Just like, I want you to interrogate your privilege. I want you to um, seek out your prejudices. And I want you to write that list. And that list, that action, be the start of something cathartic, which means that our church can heal. Because we are not um, a shining light on a hill, as we should be. Actually, we're down in the the pit with everyone else. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Chris. Um, I think I pray for the people that don't see what's happening, like whether they want to, whether they're not. Just have having people's eyes opened to what's happening, because I feel like when people start connecting with the issue on a personal level, they feel more entitled to help out and actually do something about it. So. 
like, I don't know, just, just for general education as well of all people of all colours, including black people, because mm. not, all of, not all of us are educated, not all of us know about our history, about what's going on. So just to just make people feel it, understand what, exactly what's going on, yeah. I read something earlier on, uh, something I saw, it, it, it was kind of, it's not necessarily a prayer, but it's like continue to be teachable, continue being the operative word, open to correction from our brothers and sisters, people in colour, people of colour, monitoring ourselves against defensiveness. Um, and I think, um, I think the defensiveness one's a key thing. There might be even some people, maybe because of some of the conversations where the community might, it might just trigger a feeling of like that's not me or why well, I haven't done and that that may be so but that's not that if that takes play or precedent then these issues will never have the, the time of day so I think a sense of there's no guilt like there's all grace for everyone ourselves included right um, I'm looking at anti-blackness in the Asian community and I'm challenging my Asian friends I'm doing my own part there's an integrity to what we need to do if we really care about it. But I think defensiveness is sometimes such a barrier because it, it takes up so much time and yeah. you end up kind of apologizing. I, I remember apologizing myself before I'd even spoken to a group of white people. Um, and before I opened a word, someone said, just so you know, diversity isn't just about race. I'm ashamed now, but like, you know, I was young and you know, I, you know, I talk about operating in that environment. I said, oh, no, sorry, yeah, like, I talk a lot about class and definitely, and, but n notice what I was doing. I was apologising. Mm. I was making people feel comfortable that had nothing to be annoyed about. Um, so I think, um, I think, yeah, just to um, just pray against any defence. Yeah. I know we're all on the same journey. And, you yeah. know, I, I personally think we're learning till the day we die. So, yeah. Yeah. you know. Thanks, Anne. Thank you. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for taking the time to come out today and chat. Um, I really appreciate it. And it's the beginning of something really powerful in church. And it's a continuation of, of something as well. Um, thank you. Really appreciate it. Chris, do you mind praying? To no, no, no. Ah, Lord, um, yeah. Sometimes there aren't any words, Lord. Um, there aren't any things we can say eloquently. Uh, there's just a, a sense of a sound or a feeling or a, a, a cry. And at this moment, there are so many people who aren't able to articulate that feeling that they feel um, because there's been so much pain uh, so much suffering around racism. And we pray, Lord, that you administer, not just in your house, but in our communities. You would heal those pains, but not just through miraculous intervention, but through the movement of people who created the pain uh, to make amends and to humble themselves in repentance and to move forward with actions which cause change meaningful change and we pray Lord that where 
wherever us as individuals are, that we are moved by your spirit to cause meaningful change. Amen. Amen.